Well, <clears throat> good morning. Congratulations, Kathy. Really, really happy to have you as a part of our church. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles now, if you will, uh, to Matthew chapter 8. We have been in, uh, jumping back into our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 8 is where we find ourselves, starting in verse 14. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14. I trust that you're there or close to it. Uh, you can grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can use your own. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 8, again, starting in verse 14. Glad you all are here. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. So if you would pray with me this morning, please. Father, it is such a privilege for us to be here, to enjoy sweet fellowship, uh, the, the bonds of uh, Christian fellowship together, to celebrate a uh, decision that Kathy has made to join our church. We are so grateful for that to sing our praises to you in song, and now to give to you uh, a moment of our attention as we uh, humbly turn to your word. We are so grateful that we have it in front of us, that we have access to it, that you have preserved it through the years, and that you speak oh so clearly to us through your uh, inspired and infallible word. Lord, we're grateful in particular for the life and ministry of your son, Jesus Christ, that we have recorded for us in four gospels, And as we turn our attention to one of those Gospels here in Matthew, uh, we want to come with eyes wide open, with a heart that is willing to receive your word as we think about the power of your Son, Jesus. May we always be amazed at who he is and what he has done. We ask it in his name, and God's people said, amen. Well, the story is told of a man and uh, his wife, and they were on a tour there in Israel. They were able to go on a Holy Land tour, and uh, the husband uh, decided to allow his wife to bring along his mother-in-law. So it was husband and wife and mother-in-law on a Holy Land tour when, uh, unfortunately, all of a sudden, the mother-in-law contracted um, a fatal illness, and she died there in the Holy Land. And so they went uh, to the undertaker, so to speak, and you know, asked him what, what could be done here. This is a, an unusual event for sure. And he told him that uh, they had two options. Number one, they could bury her there in the Holy Land, and that would only take $150. And then he said, but we could also, you know, send her home, and she could be buried there at home. But that would take about $5,000. So the man thought about it, and he told the undertaker, let's just send her back home. And this sort of puzzled uh, the undertaker. And so he asked the man, you know, um, why would you do that? Why would you send her home for $5,000 when, you know, she could be buried right here in the Holy Land for only $150? Well, the man thought about it for a moment and he said, you know, long ago a man died here and long ago a man was buried here. And long ago, three days later, he arose from the grave. I just can't take that chance. (laughs) I love my mother-in-law. Just want to make that clear. Well, today we find ourselves at the beginning of a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is a section that uh, we will call the power of the king. And you can see it there behind me. The power of the king. We start a new section today. And if you remember, the section uh, chapters 8 and 9 begins with a series of miracles. In fact, chapter 8 begins with a series of three 
miracles of healing meant to demonstrate Jesus' power and his authority. So if you recall, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus healed a Jewish leper. Certainly, this man was considered an outcast in the mind of most Jews. And so there we saw Jesus demonstrate his power over defilement. Last week, if you were with us, we saw Jesus healed a a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, a Roman soldier, a centurion, revealing that he not only has the power over defilement, but that he has power over distance. Remember, he healed the man's servant with, with just a word. Certainly, this uh, Gentile centurion also would have been considered an outcast among the Jewish people. Well, today we make our way into verses 14 through 17, and we see that uh, Jesus is going to heal Peter's mother-in-law. There's the tie, right? He's going to, to heal Peter's mother-in-law, revealing that he also has the power over disease, defilement, distance, and Disease. Well, the account is short, and uh, it comes to us in about four four parts. First of all, we'll see in verse fourteen uh, the woman's fever. We'll see her fever. Then uh, the the first half of verse fifteen, we'll see Jesus's favor. That is, he heals uh, her ailment. Then the second half of verse 15, we'll see the function of that favor. In other words, what is the purpose of the miracle? And then in verses 16 through 17, Matthew is going to tell us that Jesus is a healing of Peter's mother-in-law, as well as some healings that, that happened later that night are actually in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. So we get the fever, the favor, the function and then the fulfillment, and then our sermon will end with what I will call the fallout. We'll take a look at some applications from both this particular healing, as well as the first three healings as a set. And I've got about seven uh, fallouts uh, from this initial section. So, hope you have your Bibles open. Let's turn and look at verse 14 with the fever. We return to the story. If you recall from last week, Jesus uh, comes down from the mountain where he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he enters the city of Capernaum. You can see uh, where the city is located uh, there on the map behind me. It's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. So he comes down from the mountain. We see uh, last week that he healed a Roman centurion that most likely was stationed there uh, in, this, uh, in this Roman city. And then we pick up the story in verse 14 as Jesus enters Peter's house. He enters Peter's house, which as we keep on reading throughout the gospel, we're going to see that, that Peter's home serves sort of as a, a basis of operation, right? He will be in and out of Peter's house quite a bit. And as he enters the home there, verse 14, he once again encounters a person uh, who, who has need. He encounters a person who is struck by some sort of illness or disease. So let's turn our attention then to verse 14. The text reads this way, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now, unlike the first two miracle accounts that we saw in chapter 8 of Matthew, we don't really get much detail here. Matthew is succinct, and he's to the point, right? We aren't told much about her condition, simply that she had 
what the NIV calls a fever. But we know uh, contextually and from the original Greek that this is really not just a headache that she's suffering from. Literally, the text read, uh, tells us that she had been, quote, thrown into bed by this fever. Uh, and so this is not just a headache. This is uh, some se- severe disease um, that she has been struck with. And so Jesus enters Peter's house. She encounter, he encounters Peter's mother-in-law lying there with a fever. Not much detail from this gospel, but we see two parallel accounts, both in Luke and in, Ma- and in Mark. In Mark chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 4, we get some additional details that I think help us understand what's going on here in Matthew chapter 8. There in those two uh, sections, we learn that this happened on a Sabbath day. This happened on a Sabbath day, and that's going to be pretty significant as we move on. Of course, the Sabbath day was the Jewish day of rest, right? No work was to be done. And we find out, historically speaking, that this often was accompanied with a traditional Sabbath meal. And so Jesus enters the house. It's likely getting uh, later in the in the day. And he either expects this meal to have been prepared, or, or maybe it's it's in the process of being prepared. That's sort of what he expects, but instead of finding this traditional meal that's supposed to be prepared, he sees someone in need. Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed. I think this explains to us what happens a little bit later in verse 15, because when Jesus heals her, we are told by Matthew that she immediately begins meal preparation. That always strikes me as odd, but given the history of it, it makes complete sense. Also, I think we learn from these additional accounts, uh, we learn that Jesus, earlier in the day, had been teaching in the Jewish synagogue. So earlier in the morning, he had been in the Jewish synagogue there at Capernaum. He's teaching, he's preaching, and we find out earlier that he encounters a demon-possessed man there in the synagogue. And we're told that he drives out that demon, and we are told that the news of of this uh, miracle spread throughout the region of Galilee. I think that helps us understand also what happens a little bit later in this account because there will be crowds amassing at Peter's home. And to us, it seems unexpected, but given what happened earlier in the day, it is completely reasonable. So, verse 14, we see the fever, right? Peter's mother-in-law has a a fairly severe uh, sickness. Jesus enters the home. How does he respond? How does he respond to this disease? Well, we see it at the beginning of verse 15. I'll call it the favor. Very gracious act by our Lord and Savior. We see Jesus' response, verse 15. Matthew tells us that he touched her hand and the fever left her. Again, Matthew is short on words. He is short. He is to the point. He tells us exactly what happens. Jesus enters the room. He, he touches the woman's hand and immediately her disease and her fever leaves her. Now we find out from other accounts that Jesus not only touches her hand, but we are told that he rebukes the fever. Isn't that interesting language? Jesus encounters this woman. She is sick, and, he, and we're told that, that he, he touches her hand and that he simply says a word, much like he did with the centurion's servant, right? He says a word, and the fever is gone. 
He rebukes it. Isn't that interesting, interesting language? Here, both in Matthew and in the other accounts, the immediate nature of the healing is emphasized, right? He, the, the fever, Matthew says, it just, it's gone. It leaves her. And the supernatural nature of the healing is also emphasized by the fact that Jesus can not only heal by touch, but he, he can just say the word and it happens, right? It's amazing. Jesus can simply say to any disease, I don't know what he says. The text just says that he rebuked this, this, this fever. Maybe he said, stop it. Or maybe he said, be gone. Whatever it is that he said, the fever, the illness obeys him. As a parent, how I wish I had this power. Uh, the past couple weeks, um, I feel like my home has sort of been a mash unit, right? This kid is sick and they start to get better and then the other one starts to, to get something and we take them to the doctor and then on and on and on it goes. And as I came to this text this week, I was just astonished. Jesus can just rebuke these things. He can just say, get out of my house and it's done. This is an amazing power that Jesus possesses as the very Son of God. So, what then is Peter's mother-in-law's response to this gracious and powerful healing that Jesus performs? Well, we see it in the second half of verse 15, right? Again, verse 15 reads, He touched her hand and the fever left her. And, here's the response, revealing to us the function or the point of this miracle. And she got up and began to wait on him. Now, I must admit that as a new Christian, I came across this text, and my initial response was always a bit uh, questionable. I always have to admit that when I first read this, it sort of comes across as self-serving, does it not? Jesus is like, oh... You're sick and there's no food on the table, so I'm going to heal you and then start feeding me. You know, it's just initially it just sort of struck me as, as, as self-serving. But friends, this was certainly not the case. Both Luke and Mark tell us that she began to not only serve Jesus, which is what Matthew tells us, but that she also began to serve everyone in the whole household. The disciples that were with him, anybody in her family, uh, again, she got to work in serving both Jesus and those in the whole household. But second of all, again, we have to realize the context here, right? This is the Sabbath day. The traditional meal had yet to be prepared, and it seemed seemingly reasonable that Peter's mother-in-law has a big part to play in that, and so she is is healed miraculously. Her her strength is is immediately returned to her, and so she begins to prepare a meal, I believe, out of gratitude and appreciation for the one who touched her hand and rebuked her fever. Friends, this is no act of uh, just simply duty on her part. I believe that her heart is overflowing with gratitude and joy for this act by Jesus. And so she wants to respond. She wants to do something for him and for those in Peter's household. I, I think back to um, holidays at my own, in, in my own family growing up, in particular on my dad's side. And uh, my gra- grandma and grandpa on my dad's side were 
um, I guess much like many in this community, sort of good old German folks. And uh, we would often have Thanksgiving or Christmas with them. And it was my grandmother's right and joy and prerogative um, to cook the Thanksgiving or Christmas meal completely on her own. This was what she wanted to do. It was her joy to have the family and the grandkids running around, and she wanted to do this. And I recall even in her elderly years when she was sort of slowing down, and my dad and his brothers would often offer um, alternatives. They would say, Grandma or Mom, let's just take the family out. You know, let's go to the restaurant. Let's take them out. It's so much less work for you. Or they would say, you know what? We're happy to to help you cook. You know, you can do the turkey. We'll do everything else. We're happy to do that. How do you think she responded to that? No go, right? Not my granny. She did not want any of that. It was her house. We were her guests. She wanted to cook the meal. She always did it for us. It was her joy. She wanted to do that. And I just sort of see in this response by Peter's mother-in-law, this gratitude, this joy. She had received such a favor from Jesus, and she wants to express that by serving Jesus. Well, we've seen her fever. We've seen Jesus' favor. And then the function or the point of that miracle But the miracles really don't end there. We sort of expect it to end there because it's the third miracle in this first set. But um, the miracle account actually does not end there because Jesus not only heals heals the disease that ailed Peter's mother-in-law, but as we move then into verses 16 and 17, Matthew records that many other people that many other people in the city of Capernaum and in the region of Galilee, many other people also experienced the miraculous power and the healing grace of, uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that night. So as we move then into verses 16 and 17, Matthew says that both Peter's mother-in-law, her healing, and then the many other people that were healed actually was done in fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment in verses 16 and 17. First, we see in verse 16 that people are healed. And then second, in verse 17, we see that prophecy is heeded. Verse 16. Let's return to the text. When evening came, Matthew tells us, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word. And, Matthew tells us, he healed all the sick. He healed all the sick. So Matthew transitions from one miracle to many miracles that happened on that particular Sabbath day. So evening uh, fades, right? The sun sets and the moon begins to come up and the stars begin to show up uh, in the sky there over the city of Capernaum. And uh, we see that something uh, is brewing in the city, right? Uh, There are um, people traveling, searching for Jesus, See, they've heard about what happened in the synagogue earlier that day. News traveled and travels fast. And they may have even heard about Peter's mother-in-law being healed. And so as evening 
came, Matthew tells us that, that many people who were demon-possessed came to Jesus and he healed them. He drove out the spirits with just a word. And not only those who were uh, demon-possessed, but those who were disease-possessed, if you will. Many people who were sick. Now, here's a question. Why did they wait till sunset? Did you notice that in the text? Matthew gives us a very important detail. It helps us understand what's going on. He says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed and many who were sick were healed. Why did they wait for sunset? What day was it again? You remember? It was the Sabbath day. And you may recall from your experience of reading the Gospels that many of the Jews thought that to heal someone on the Sabbath day was to be considered work, right? We see this uh, even in Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. And so they wait. They waited. They waited. As the sun faded away, I could see the throngs um, lining up at Peter's door, even pressing upon the house. They had heard that Jesus was in town, and they brought to him those who were spiritually sick, and they brought to him those who were physically sick, And what is the picture that Matthew paints for us? What is the picture both of power and of grace that Jesus uh, performs here? Notice, many people who were demon-possessed, he drove them out. And those who were healed of their sicknesses, each and every one of them were. Each and every one of them. So, what's the picture that Matthew is giving us? Here is a picture of a powerful and gracious Messiah. He attends to each and every person that approaches him. You know, um, if I were Jesus, you know, I probably would have said something like, who's at the door, Peter? Knock, knock, knock. Well, there are lots of people at the door, Jesus. Why are they here? Well, they're they're demon-possessed. They're they're sick, Jesus. And, And if it were me, I'd have said, It's been a long day, right? The door's closed. I'm tired. No more of this. I've already healed lots of people today. But of course, this is not what Jesus does, right? He is our compassionate and powerful Savior. Each and every one that came that night was healed. Each and every person who was demon-possessed had it cast out. Each and every illness, each and every disease, be it spiritual or physical, Jesus healed them body and soul. No one was turned away. No one was sent home disappointed. They were all healed completely, permanently, clinically, undeniably. Matthew sort of crescendos this series of three miracles with this grand exhibition of power. No disease is too much for Jesus. No spiritual power is beyond Jesus' strength. This is a grand exhibition of the power of the king. And then Matthew tells us in verse 17 that when Jesus healed these people, that he did so in fulfillment of prophecy. Notice verse 17. We see this quite a bit in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes, sort of loosely, Isaiah 53.3. He took up our infirmities... And he bore 
our diseases. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn now with me to Isaiah chapter 53. It's not on the screen, but I think it's important that we see this. Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles, turn there now. Isaiah chapter 53 is, in my opinion, one of the clearest prophecies given to us in the Old Testament about the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus paid for us on the cross. In chapter 53, we get a beautiful description of the suffering servant, of of the Jewish king who would come to die in place of for the sins of his people. We'll just read it in its entirety. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, he, speaking of Jesus prophetically, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. This picture of Jesus being incarnated and growing. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And then verse 4 comes, which Matthew then says, this is what Jesus fulfilled by healing these people. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. Beautiful words here in verse 5. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We'll stop there. This great prophecy that the Messiah would not only be king to rule, but that he would be the suffering savior, right? And so Isaiah, Isaiah here is, fulf, uh, is fulfilled in part. Matthew looks at the healing, the physical healing that took place. And he says, you know what? That's what the Jewish Messiah came to do. But here's the great news. Not only did the Jewish Messiah come to heal physical diseases, but he came to heal us of our, uh, the, the spiritual infirmity, the, the, the disease that we all are inflicted with, that we all most need healing. Of course, it's the disease of sin. John Phillips, in his commentary, explains Jesus' work here, here of healing in light of what would happen on the cross. He says this, healing rested solidly on his future redemptive sufferings. In dying for our sins, he dealt with the underlying reason of sickness and suffering. The Lord fully understood that all the physical and mental ills he cured were caused in the long run by sin. In other words, the Lord's power was based on his passion. At Calvary, he was going to get at the root, so now he could deal with the fruit. His miracles of healing were in anticipation of the power of the cross to deal with sin 
root and branch. So, friends, as we close our sermon here this morning, I want us to see um, seven application points. We'll call, out, call it the fallout, both of this particular miracle and then the first three miracles as a whole. Number one, we'll start with the obvious. Jesus can heal physically. We shouldn't miss that which is obvious. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and thus he clearly has demonstrated that he has all power and all authority over human disease and illness. He obviously could do it while he was on earth, and he can do it today while he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We see it many times in the book of Acts that in Jesus's name, that is by his power and by his authority, people are healed. He can heal immediately, instantly, fully and completely. But here is the catch. If he wills it, if he so chooses to do so. We go back to the miracle last week of the centurion. We mustn't forget his words. He approached Jesus and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal my servant. See, in God's mysterious and good providence, Jesus does physically heal some, but he chooses to not heal others. Clearly, this passage teaches us something about Jesus and his deity and his power. But secondly, not only can Jesus heal physically, friends, but the quotation of Isaiah 53, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus can not only heal physically, but he can heal spiritually, right? By, Isaiah, by, by quoting Isaiah chapter 53, Matthew wants us to look beyond the physical healing that Jesus did perform and does perform to the spiritual healing that he offers every single person. And for those of us who are believers in him, we are healed spiritually. Friends, if you are a Christian today, he was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. He can and does heal the root of all sickness, which of course is sin. So Christian, believer, rejoice. Matthew wants us to know that whether Jesus so chooses to heal us physically or not, that in the cross and in his powerful resurrection, he has taken care of that which is our most pressing problem. Because here's the deal. The people that Jesus healed in the gospels, guess what? They all died. They all died. And so do we. And we need a Savior who can heal not only physically, but who can heal us spiritually from our most pressing problem. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And only Jesus, the God-man, can take care of that problem. Number three. This is a great one, I think. This is from the first three miracles as a whole. Jesus healed the leper. He healed the centurion. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And it's this, Jesus loves outcasts. See, maybe you today consider yourself to be such. For whatever reason, maybe you feel like you're an outcast, be it socially or financially. You feel rejected or despised by some or by others. Maybe you feel sort of like uh, you belong on the island of misfit toys. Remember the classic movie, right? I love watching it every year, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There's this island, you, you recall it, right? The island of misfit toys where all of these toys that feel like they don't belong, they, they congregate together. Maybe you feel like you belong on something like that. If so, then friends, these first three miracles um, are meant to be good news to you. Dr. Thomas Constable says this, 
He says the Pharisees considered lepers, Gentiles, and women in part as outcasts, but Jesus showed mercy to them. By healing a leper who was a social outcast, a Gentile, and finally a woman, Jesus was extending his grace to people that the Jews either excluded or ignored as unimportant. And here's the good news, friends. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loves all people. He loves outcasts as well. Number four, this particular healing, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' work on the cross. We talked about that, so I won't beat a dead horse here. Matthew wants us to read his quotation of Isaiah 53, and he wants us to go back and to read Isaiah 53 in its entirety and to be awestruck by the fact that King Jesus, right? Matthew presents Jesus as King as a powerful king. He wants us to read Isaiah 53 and be awestruck by the fact that King Jesus is going to be treated like criminal Jesus. That at some point, as the Gospels continue on, that he will be beaten, he will be mocked, he will be nailed to a cross, he will be crucified, and in doing so, he takes upon our infirmities. He deals with sin at its root. So this miracle is a foreshadowing of the cross, but these miracles as a whole also forecast something. These three miracles that we've seen are a forecast, in a sense, of the rest of the Bible. So follow me here. It's not easy. Uh, it's, not, it's not difficult to see. Miracle number one. Jesus heals a Jewish leper. Correct? He heals a Jewish leper. Miracle number two. He heals a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. Correct? Uh, Miracle number three, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, obviously a a, a Jewish woman, correct? Uh, Jew, Gentile, and then Jew. So let me just ask you a question here, those of you who may be familiar with Scripture. Um, Do we see this pattern played out in uh, in the rest of Scripture? Yeah, absolutely we do. Who did the gospel first go to in the gospels and in the book of Acts? Jews, right? Did they reject it as a whole or did they accept it? They rejected it as a whole. And so then the gospel went to whom? Gentiles, right? And they received it uh, gladly. But then Paul tells us, is God done with his covenant people? Is God done with the, the Jewish nation? Clearly not. He tells us in, in chapter 11 of, of Romans that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles have, ha, have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So we got Jew, Gentile, Jews. And this, this little first three sets of miracles, Matthew is sort of forecasting. This is, this is the way it's going to work in history. Number six, this account not only is a forecast, but it is, I think, to some degree, a foretaste. It is a foretaste of heaven. See, the completeness in which Jesus healed all of the people brought to him, I think is just a small picture of what heaven will be like. Dr. D.A. Carson, you may have heard of him, professor up at Trinity in Chicago. He says this about this passage. He says the healings during Jesus' ministry can be understood not only as the foretaste of the kingdom, but also as the fruit of Jesus' death. See, Matthew gives us a picture. Everyone in that place, everyone who came to Jesus, uh, the house that Jesus was in, they all were healed, right? This picture of wholeness and completeness. Friends, as we 
get a glimpse and a picture in the book of Revelation of the final heavenly state. It says this in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And so here in this little scene where everybody comes to Jesus and they all walk away healed and whole. I think it's just a foretaste, just a little glimpse to whet our appetite. This is, this is the end result of what Jesus will do. And then finally, Jesus heals us to serve him and to serve others. He heals us to serve him and to serve others. Very clearly, we see that this is the response of Peter's mother-in-law, is it not? William Barclay once said this, He said, Peter's mother-in-law used the gift of her health restored to serve Jesus and to serve others. And then he says, this is the way in which we should use every gift of God. So friends, let me ask you, how are you using the gifts of God that he has given you? Certainly, are you using the spiritual gifts that are outlined in the New Testament? Are you using those for the advancement of the kingdom and for the good of the church? But certainly, we've received other gifts as well. We have talents. We have abilities. We have finances. We have time, do we not? And all of these things are gifts of God's grace and Jesus' grace to us. And so the question then is, are are we mimicking the response of Peter's mother-in-law She received this great grace from Jesus. And friends, if you are a Christian, you have received much grace from Jesus, have you not? Then how are you responding? What are you doing with those gifts? Jesus heals us to serve him and to serve others. He is a powerful king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these first three miracles where we see very clearly that your son is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is none other than the very son of God. At his word, demons are rebuked and cast out. The power of darkness trembles before your son. And at his touch, at his very word, any and every ailment and disease, mental or physical, can be cast away. We are, Jesus, in awe of you. And so may we then in turn respond to this gift of grace that you've given us. You have lived perfectly. We can't. You have died bearing our sins that we deserve, and you have risen from the dead. You have given us your spirit, and you call us to respond by serving you and serving others. May we be as Peter's mother-in-law, we pray, and all of God's people together said, amen. See you next week, guys. Thanks for coming.